Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Our Jesuit Podcast interview today is with Father Thomas P. Sherman, who teaches philosophy at our Gregorian University in Rome. Father Sherman received his BA in philosophy, he graduated summa cum laude from Marquette University in the 1970s, and he got his MA in philosophy at St. Louis University again in the 70s. He received his uh, Master of Divinity at Weston Jesuit School of Theology and a PhD in philosophy at the University of Toronto. And he also received his STL in spirituality from the Pontifical University of the Gregorian University in Rome. Tom has taught at our university, Sogong, in Seoul, uh, Korea, South Korea. He has taught in our philosophate in uh, Zimbabwe. Father Sherman has taught at Loyola University in Los Angeles. And he is currently teaching philosophy at the Gregorian University in Rome. We had an extensive conversation, and we pick up the conversation with Tom's discussion of his work in Korea uh, and then life in Zimbabwe and Africa. I spent three years in uh, studying theology at Weston, where we met. But then I returned to Korea, and it was at that time, by the second year of my time in Korea, well, I mean, I could communicate in the language, but I wasn't able to teach until my second year there. So I then I was able to teach, taught Korean, worked at a parish, and did all my work in Korean at that point. So we're talking right now about 19, let's see, maybe 1990. I requested to stay in Korea because I, I felt, I, you know, I was working well. I didn't have a doctorate, but that was good. It 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 was good for me because for me to get a doctorate would have meant that I really would have have had to left Korea because of the situation there. Uh, they did. So how, how many total years were you there, Tom, in Korea? Six years. I returned. Then after my stint there in Korea, I returned. I spent a year at Berkeley, getting my fourth year out of the way, fourth year theology. And then I went to doctoral studies at the University of Toronto. So I was there until, you know, a number of incidents happened, so my stint there was prolonged. But 1999, I finished the doctorate and spent another six months in Korea teaching. And then I came to Loyola Marymount University. Okay. So I spent seven years at Loyola Marymount, and I got tenure. During that time, I had discerned to leave Loyola Marymount, and the reason was I really felt a call to be a missionary, to go out in foreign land. And at the time, I was thinking of China, but I was open to other places. Many people on the East Coast do consider California a foreign land, you know. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's certainly a foreign, and it's certainly even more true today. So I wrote the Father General. He wrote back. He said, look, I want you to get tenure. And then I stayed at LMU, got tenure. And at that point, I heard from the General that he was thinking of sending me to Africa. And I had I had a doctorate bill in a secular, so I had a secular degree. 
Okay. And for me, I really wanted to be able to teach in a seminary anywhere in the in the world. Mm-hmm. To do that, I needed a church degree. Why did you have a desire to uh, teach in a seminary? Well, because I believe you get more bang for your buck if you can work in a seminary. In other words, if you can have some influence on people who will who will get into ministry, and especially priests. So it's, it's, and the, this it's was the, the Ignatian Majus, the greater good. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is why I... I, you know, I was happy at LMU, but um, I really wanted to work with the people in ministry, and in particular in seminaries, working with young men, especially working in the area of the priesthood, celebrating the Eucharist, hearing confessions. Sacramental ministry is something that I've always cherished, and I wanted to share that desire with with young people as well as, you know, I... I I do well with young people. So this was the motive, this was behind my my motivation to present Teach myself to Father General. Are you teaching the seminarians that you had hoped you would be teaching? I am. It's it's not exactly the way I had, I had planned it, but then <laughs> very little of our life is actually the way we plan it to be. But yes, as a matter of fact, what I'm doing now is I am working with people from all over the world who are going on getting doctorates or, or at least the equivalent of masters in philosophy, philosophy, theology, and then they go back to their churches and teach. So in a way, I am doing what I had intended to do in the beginning. I had originally thought of being at a seminary itself. I hadn't thought of being within the society. I had thought of, you know, seminary, say, in a, a diocesan situation. Sure. So I spent two years in Rome to get an STL, okay. all right? And the idea and for was... Our I talk, for our listeners who won't know what that is, explain what an STL is. Okay, it's a licentiate in sacred theology. Very good, thank you. All right, it's not it's not quite the terminal degree, but it's it's enough that it would allow me to teach in any seminary throughout the world, anywhere Excellent. in the world. And that's, that's all I wanted. All right, so I got that. And then I got my marching orders to go to Africa. This wasn't directly from the Father General, but from my superiors who were in contact with people in Africa. And they said, look, we, we really need people in Zimbabwe. At the time, it was very, very bad, still very bad. We really needed people. We had a lot of young Jesuits there, but we didn't have many professors, and they said, we really need people. So... That's where I went. So I was sent to Zimbabwe. This had been 2009. And I worked there for about eight years. Now, what I did there, I, I taught at our, our school of philosophy. I was the superior of a small community. I did formation work. And on the weekends, I, I worked in parishes. Nice. Now, the most city. of the people now, listening to this, Tom, will be Americans. What is the experience, okay. your experience as American? living and participating in church life in Zimbabwe? Well, I mean, I I had a very good experience, but it was, you know, as an American, you get mixed reactions from people because of our, you know, political and economic prominence in the world. You get a kind of schizophrenic reaction. I mean, some people 
like you for the wrong reasons, and other people don't like you for the, for the wrong, for the wrong reasons. reasons. So, is, is yeah, the yeah. church so, in Africa different? Is it pretty vibrant, or a lot of people coming? Uh, in yes, it, yes. No, no. It's 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 vibrant. It's very young. It's a very young church. So many, I would say, almost half are converts. And so you have a situation where, well, for obvious reasons, it's important to be there because the church is vibrant, but, again, with all the converts, it's not as deep as, not as well-founded as it would be in other places. So I was excited about that, and I was hoping actually to work in a seminary there, but I wasn't able to. So that's what I did in in Africa. And then... At the end of that, question, again, a, a sure. comparative question between the United States sure. Church and the churches in uh-huh. Norway. Of course, you know yeah. that we're 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 rocked by uh, abuse scandal and still having fallout, financial fallout. Yes, a lot of concern. Are any of those issues present in Zimbabwe, or is it just a very different cultural experience? It's a very different cultural experience. I mean, that's uh-huh. not to say that uh, some of the same issues aren't there, but it's not what it's like in the states. In in Africa, celibacy is definitely not a lifestyle that that comes out of the culture. Right. All right, and so it's it's highly valued. People are amazed that that you know people even try to live celibate. You know, now this is for men and women. Sure. So there's more leeway. In other words, they're not as critical. You know, so for instance, if a priest falls, you know, I mean, if he got a partner somewhere. I mean, usually a woman. It's, and homosexuality is almost, well, certainly not spoken of. But people will kind of kind of give them the benefit of the doubt, you know. I mean, it's not that it's, you know, they know it's not right, but that gives you an idea of the situation there. Is it is it hard for uh, the, the diocese to recruit uh, young men and for religious orders to recruit women? Into a life well, actually, actually, they do well with religious orders. Diocesan, the the problem in Zimbabwe is it's so poor. You get diocesan, you get uh, vocations, but they almost don't survive physically. I mean, they're hungry. I mean, I visited and uh, the uh, the seminary a number of times, and Bill talk about <laughs> talk about third world. I mean, it was so poor, you know. I mean, I'm I'm not saying simple. I mean, poor, and poor. and they didn't have enough to eat. It was just, uh, it was just, a, it was a terrible situation, you know. Yeah. And okay. so uh, many of them can't can't get through, okay. you know. Now, again, this is when I was there, you know, which was a while ago. But things have not gotten better. I mean, that country is a failed. It, it's you know it's a, a failed government, it's a failed political system, and it may even be worse now than it was back then. Would you say is it, no, is it endemic political corruption that just carries on uh, decade after decade? Yes, yes, okay. yes, pretty much so, pretty much so. Yeah, I mean their so-called revolution in the nineteen or early nineteen eighties was really hijacked by the military, and the military has refused to. To let go of power because because of all the murders that occurred during the revolution and after they're afraid of giving up power they're they're afraid of being brought to the dock you know right and so 
this continues, and it's continued since 1980. So I've always um, been a, a big uh, a big Bob Marley fan. He's got some great songs about Africans liberating Zimbabwe. So that was probably at the time of that 1980s revolution. I expect that could could very well have been. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's a difficult situation there. I mean, there there's the excitement of the faith is there, the growth of the faith, but the poverty of the country and the government is so repressive that if the church is perceived to step out of line, for instance, to criticize the government in any way, those who criticize the government are jailed, and you don't want to be in a Zimbabwe jail. They're jailed, they're tortured. Those who survive do not speak anymore. Wow. Oh, they play hardball. So what has happened then is the church is basically silenced. It's silenced about anything political. Okay. They do a lot of good work with the poor, and the Zimbabweans are very impressed with that. And of course, you know their you know their their own parishes and and uh, you know sacramental ministry, of course, is, is primary. But but uh, any any kind of political dissidence, and you're just you're disappeared, you know. Did you know anyone who was uh, arrested or paid a price for that? Yes, yes. There were some Jesuits who were arrested, but because they were Jesuits, <laughs> they were high-profile Jesuits. High-profile people, right. And, yeah, and so people in the church were able to to leverage the government to get them out. Now, remember, the dictator at the time, Mugabe, was a Catholic. Now, that's not the case. Mugabe has died, but, you know, the, the, the repressive system is still in. So anyway, that was pretty much my experience there in Zimbabwe. And I, I, I visited other countries. I was in Zambia for a while. I was up in Kenya. did some studies in Cote d'Ivoire. So I got a sense of the church in Africa. And, of course, I, I got to know many of the African Jesuits who came to Arupe from all over the continent. Okay. And right. so, so I got a good, again, you know, a kind of a second-hand account of the situation there in Africa. How is the Society of Jesus doing with regards to indigenous vocations in Africa? I think they're doing very well. Again, it, it, you, you'd have to distinguish countries, but in general, the vocations are indigenous. And this is one of the reasons why I left. They asked me to come because I was needed. But once we got enough Jesuits to replace me, and they were African Jesuits. Okay. You know, I was no longer I was no longer needed, so it was time for me to go. So that's of course you had, you had accomplished your goal, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, you, you, the ideal of a missionary is to work oneself out of a job, right? And that's what happened. So I, I felt very good about that. This is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast, and we have been interviewing Father Thomas P. Sherman, who teaches philosophy at the Gregorian University in Rome. We're picking up our interview with Tom's discussion of the courses that he's teaching at the Greg and his thoughts on theology and philosophy as it's taught currently in the United States and the state of philosophy formation in the United States. And so I returned to the States, but then I, I was asked by my provincial at the time, Mike Wilder, if I would consider Rome. 
He said, you know, you need people in Rome. You've got a background. You could help out there. So I said yes. And that's how I got to Rome. And so I've been in Rome now for two and a half years or almost in – it'll be three years in October. Okay. Tell me, so tell me the, the, the courses yeah. that you teach and the ones that are your favorite and the ones that are the students' favorites. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned it may be different. <laughs> I teach a lot of the courses that I was teaching at Loyola Marymount University and in Africa. So I teach courses in philosophy of God. So we look at the you know arguments for and against the existence of God. How can we know anything about God from a human perspective? I teach courses on in ethics. So this last semester, for instance, I. I had a course on Thomas Aquinas in on law, so law in Aquinas, and I also taught a course in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and I'm going to be teaching a course in philosophy of language, which is a very important course, I think, to understand the issue in theology of dogma and how dogma puts its language and and whatnot, because as you as you no doubt know. This has been a controversy uh, among the modernists, you know, that dogma cannot be brought, I mean, our knowledge of God cannot be captured in language, and therefore dogma itself is ultimately vacuous. What's important is our own inner experience of God. I'm uh, jumping through modernism fairly quickly. But I want to show that this is completely false, so this is not the the church's uh, traditional understanding. And to do that, I need to look at some philosophical heavyweights like Aristotle and Aquinas and contemporary philosophers like Wittgenstein and others to to look at what is language and and how does language function, how do we use language to express how we understand things. So in in other words, I, I think it's a very, very important background knowledge to do theology. Tom, do you find that the students are coming skeptical of dogma, or are they open to the idea that there is some type of objective uh, normative truth, or are you no, giving I think, them tools yeah. to explain it to people? Yeah, no, I, I'm giving them tools. I, I don't think at this level, at the, le- the students I'm dealing with, and they tend to be, they've already gone through undergraduate studies, wherever they're from. Now, you know, that varies in quality, but they've already had some kind of degree. And most of them are either religious or they're diocesan priests, or, you know, religious either male or female, but we do have a percentage who are lay. But in general, they are very sympathetic to the faith. So I don't have students who are critical, but I have students that feel need to understand the problems, the issues throughout the world. And that's what I like to do. And, you know, I have other courses that I think were very popular. I taught a course in Martin Buber, I and Thou, where I compared Buber with uh, Carl Jung. And uh, Buber has a very stringent criticism of you. And I I think it's very interesting. And the students, they really thought it was interesting. So courses like that are very popular. They're more accessible. You've oh, lived um, and worked in the United States for, you know, I have, yes. many years. The yeah, idea yeah. in a university in the United States, even in a Catholic university in the theology department or philosophy department, that there is some type of objective normative truth is just not really held very widely anymore. 
Exactly. Certainly in theology, it's not. In theology. Yeah, I think, and I'm talking about in the States. I think so-called professional theology is empty at the core. In you fact, think it's at, the main reason for that is it is it intellectual? Is it uh, is it uh, some other type of reality that has kind of? I think it's both. I think after Vatican II, the Church ceased to insist on uh, concentrating on classical Western philosophy. So Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Plotinus. Aquinas, Bonaventure, they ceased to emphasize this, and they moved toward existentialism, 20th century philosophy. The problem with that, I'm, I'm not against that. I, you know, I, I teach a lot of that. The problem is without a well-developed core, a well-developed foundation, you don't have the intellectual wherewithal to be able to criticize these very fashionable philosophical movement. Or and they're very sexy and attractive to a secular culture. Too. Very, very attractive. And they're attractive to the post-Vatican II Jesuit because he's everything he's heard about pre-Vatican II is terrible. So that we certainly don't want to study philosophy of Aquinas, for instance. The whole list of men you mentioned are dead white men. You realize that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but Bill, this is true even even in, in our era prior to this this kind of cultural Marxism. What was was non traditional was held to be better. And again, the problem is that we've lost. I think that we've lost that intellectual tradition. Now I'm hearing that it's starting to come back, but this is crucial. So I think intellectually we've lost that that core, the, you know, those core principles that kind of fundamentals. Philosophy is wishy-washy. And if philosophy is wishy-washy, theology will definitely definitely be wishy-washy. You know, I've, uh, I've, I've looked at, I've, I've lived in uh, university worlds for, you know, 20, 25, 30 years. And yeah. for me, I think at the bottom of all of these issues in terms of orthodoxy, truth, relativism, is it's kind of the original sin. Everybody is more attracted to defining their own reality the way that mm-hmm. they want it to be defined. That's and they don't want anybody right. laying any type of rules or scriptures on on them. And that is kind of the reigning philosophy of the day. And if anybody's going to do that, then basically that's evil. And everybody has to define for his or herself what is real. That's right. Themselves. That's right. That's right. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, ultimately, it's the sin of pride. Instead of looking for the truth, because to really look for the truth, you've got to be humble. You've got to say, well, I might not know, and so I'm willing to listen. Well, again, people want, instead of wanting to know, they want to define their own truth. I want to find my way, you know, my truth, you know, that that type of attitude. I didn't use the word pride. I think pride is something that people love now. I said, you know, I fly in Alaska Airlines and they're proud to serve Starbucks coffee. Oh, right, you right. Know, you're a proud crusader yes, if you go yes. to this high school. So I used the word That's narcissism right. in my book uh, on the Ignatian, uh, the sin, you know, the, the core sin. I used narcissism. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the only word that still has kind of what I call kind of a wince factor. If you accuse somebody of being a narcissist, but even now, that might not be working anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. hard to accuse no. somebody of being proud. Satanic pride. How's that? Very good. Very good. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, not to put too fine an edge on it, but <laughs> right. um, 
yeah, somehow, you know, uh, I, I understand what you're what you're saying. I mean, the use of psychological terms can sometimes be more effective. However, they have a boomerang effect as well. So I think we have to be careful with such language. However, I think the situation in theology is such that because they do not, theologians do not, and theologians tell me this as well, that they aren't trained sufficiently enough in philosophy. So you can get a degree in, in theology without without much philosophy at all. If you can't explain to people why you think what you think, and this was always the great line of Jesuit education, the Jesuits taught me how to think, but without that undergirding in philosophy and logic and right. how to form an argument and to make an argument that's and to right. an argument, you're just not going to be able to do theology. Well, that's right. But, you know, that was dampened down when we were in theology, and the reason was because we wanted the women, the women and lay people. So it was this agenda we didn't emphasize philosophy at the time. So people were coming in, and they're getting degrees without basis in, in philosophy. So I remember sitting in class. People would talk about Rahner, and the people who didn't have a philosophical background, two, two things happened. Either it went completely over their heads, or they swallowed this hook, line, and sinker without a critical sense of weight. There are legitimate critical issues in Rahner, in Lonergan, and some of these thinkers. But they were completely innocent of this. Without so you think it was not so much that they were women, but they were laity, and that the school didn't want to impose a philosophical requirement that's right. in, that's, in order that's, to attract that's more people I, there. They, well, they wanted to attract women, but they wanted to attract also lay people. But the emphasis on philosophy then was was downplayed. And I think this has hurt us in the long run. So it's a question, you know, after Vatican II, it's a question in the theology department of strong, rigorous philosophical training, but also ultimate lack of faith. In terms of the United States, you're probably familiar with at least the maybe the diocese, the seminary system, and also the Jesuit. How is the state of philosophy teaching for people in formation in our own culture here? Well, that's a very good question. Now, uh, here at the Greg, at least, I'm happy to say that we're trained. We've got some good people here, you know, like Kevin Flannery's here and, and others who are really helping to get a lot of the diocesan priests good doctorates in solid people like Aquinas, like Augustine, you know, uh, like Aristotle. And they're going back to their diocese, and they're either teaching or they end up in get, getting in administration. But at least from my perspective, it seems like we are doing what we can to help the situation. Now, I hear on the ground that more and more bishops in the states are beginning to see this and are beginning to insist on their men having a good scholastic background, scholastic philosophy, you know, of Aristotle and Aquinas. So uh, I've some, you know, at the NAC, North American College here, you know, I've met a number of guys who have told me that their bishops want them to go into philosophy, but it, you know, they want them in a certain, certain traditional philosophy. And and the, the young men are, are the young men are eager about this too. So this is obviously a good sign. Now, how how prevalent it is, I can't say.
Hello, welcome back. This is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. And this is the final part of our interview with Father Thomas P. Sherman, who teaches philosophy at our university, the Gregorian, in Rome. We pick up this last part of our interview conversation where Father Sherman speaks about the difference he sees between the theological approach and the writings of Pope Francis and Pope Benedict in their intellectual work. And then finally, we have his wonderful vocation story, how he discovered his vocation as a young man in high school and eventually entered the Society of Jesus. You've uh, been around quite a few years. What would you say is the major intellectual pastoral shift or difference between Pope Benedict and Pope Francis that you can see in terms of kind of an intellectual sphere? The differences in, in approach, direction, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, I would say Benedict is a very learned man, a very profound theologian, a very learned man. And he approached, his writings are very careful. They're very, very good. Francis, on the other hand, is not an intellectual. It's not to say he's not bright, but he's definitely not an intellectual. His writings are diffuse. There are Jesuits who write for him, but his, his writings tend to be diffuse. He tends to be, he, he repeats himself. What could be said in one paragraph takes a couple pages to say, you know, I'm a slight exaggeration, but I mean, he, he's not as precise. He's not as deep, and I think he's too uncritical. He comes from a liberation theology background, and he constantly talks about the problems he had, well, earlier on, so-called manual scholastic philosophy. He always, he always you know, degrades or he, he criticizes traditional philosophy. But he comes from this liberation background, liberation theology background, which, frankly, now is passe. I mean, I talk with young people from South America, and they say, this liberation theology, we don't take it seriously anymore. But Francis is of that, of that background, so he, he tends to write from that perspective, whereas as Benedict is quite critical of, of liberation theology and its effects. The writing uh, style and the content and the manner of delivery is, is intellectual or is it based in different, the difference between like a, a Latin American culture and a German intellectual culture? I would say, yes. I mean, that might be a, a, a fair way, at least overall, to put it. I mean, I talk with, with our Jesuits here from Argentina. You know, it's interesting. They say, well, you know, they say he's a typical Argentinian. What could be said in, in one sentence will take you dozens of sentences. This is Argentinian, at least they tell me, you know, so, so he's part of, you know, that, that background, that culture. His emphasis is on the pastoral, not the intellectual. In other words, so he doesn't really, for me, I've read a number of his things, uh, his encyclicals, you know, he doesn't really get to the core of the issue. He kind of, I mean, his interests are more pastoral than analytic. His skills are not analytic. So he, he writes in a way that, you know, some people find uh, very attractive. But no, for me, they, they don't have the kind of analytic power, the incisiveness, depth. What do you think will be the, uh, you know, he's been in for 
enough years to kind of create a legacy. What do you think will be his lasting legacy to the history of the Catholic Church? He's brought in as cardinals in the Vatican. I mean, his appointments in the United States. He's going to have quite an effect. In fact, I'm told, I don't know if you've heard this, but I've heard this among Jesuits, that the father, the former Father General just died, Nicholas, was talking with Benedict, and, and not Benedict, Francis, and Francis said, well, I'm going to make sure the church changes, and it will change because of my appointments. So I think I think he will be more significant in the church because of his many, many, many appointments okay. than anything else. Anything else. It's, no, it's you know, like in the United States where a president can appoint federal judges all over the place, and that's going to have a, a more lasting impact that, than maybe any policy. Exactly. I think, I think that's a good analogy. The difference is the Holy Spirit <laughs> is there. So God works in unexpected ways. Back to your original statement in terms of your plans, that we make plans and God laughs, as they say. Yeah. I mean, God works with us and through us and despite us. (laughs) We can certainly see that in the history of Israel. (laughs) They worked a lot against God, and somehow he wove the resurrection and the whole redemptive narrative through that history. That's really, finally, our Christian perspective. You know, the Lord promises with us, no matter what, in these times, we just have to dig down and trust more deeply. Let me so, ask you a question. I don't know if you remember telling me about this uh, years ago, but you told me your kind of vocation story when you were in high school and you went through a period mm-hmm. of rather severe doubting. I think that's – I tell that on a lot of retreats, so I don't know if you'd be willing to kind of put it in your own words for people to hear it, because I, I think it's very, very important. For a while there, I was – you know, I considered – God to be, you know, a myth. I identified myself as an atheist. And this is but in high school. This is high school. So late high school, you know, so late maybe senior, junior, senior. So, and at the time, you know, I, I had nobody to talk with because people were just going their own way. And it just later I discovered a lot of my classmates when they went to college had similar issues. But anyway, uh, so I was really, really you know, I, I, I didn't understand, I didn't come across any kind of argumentation that would change my mind, you know. Um, but, but you weren't you were an isolated nerd thinking about these things. You played sports, didn't you? Oh, exactly. Yes, yes. But I mean, and you, were, down, and you were a top student. You were a top student. As you were yeah, yeah. But deep down, but deep down, there was this, this hole, so to speak, you know. And I think providentially. My dad had a very extensive library in, at home, you know, at our home. And I just happened to run across some, some philosophy books. And the figure, for instance, the figure of Socrates, you know, in Plato's dialogues, and some of the great philosophers, theologians like Etienne Gilson. I started reading this, and, and it, it really had an effect on me, because I thought, here are really well-reasoned arguments in favor of what I don't believe, but I came across well-reasoned arguments. And this so impressed me that I began to doubt my doubts. Hmm. And it was at this point, it was out of this kind of situation where I was really, you know, I didn't know where to go. I remember uh, one evening, uh, it was late at night, I went to my room shut the door, 
this was in my room at home, shut the door and didn't turn on the lights. It was completely dark. And I just cried out, God, if you exist, help me, help, you know, help me if you exist. And, and you're 18 years old, moment, about 18 years old. Yeah, yeah, time. that's right, that's right. And at that point, something inside exploded. I mean light. And not just light, but a, a sense of love, being loved, you know. Uh, and all I remember, Bill, is I was just on my knees crying mm-hmm. in joy in joy and uh and all night practically all night and then i you know fell asleep in that but woke up in the morning i woke up in the morning and i thought wow what happened to me you know i said you know was that was that real was i hallucinating but one thing bill that changes now i began to search in a with a sense of humility is there a god i want to find out but I know I don't know. Yeah, I find it remarkable no. that somebody 18 years old in the early 70s is having an, an existential intellectual crisis on the reality of God and the and 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 yeah. the beauty or truth of the world. So I think that's yeah. a sign that God's working in there. You know, maybe from me calling you from your womb. <laughs> your I think womb so. You know? Yes, that was the beginning of the change. I didn't. I I, I wouldn't say I believed at that point, but I began, you know, uh, the reality of God now became a real mystery to me. So out of humility, I started reading and reading and beginning to pray. And that's crucial. One of the things I remember you telling me is in terms of what gave you the sense that what happened was authentic in terms of that, mm-hmm. that night experience, mm-hmm. you said you knew that what was happening wasn't being generated by you, but you felt it coming at you. That's right. Outside. Oh, absolutely. That was the beginning of the change. I didn't these conversion experiences. The power is, you know, it's like um, it's like AA. You know, you reach a point that you can't go on. It's not you any longer, and you cry out at that moment, and you receive. You receive something you don't have. If you, if you had not gotten that response that night, what do you think would have happened to you? If you hadn't received uh, that that experience yeah. of love, I would you, still, would you still be alive? I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you, Bill. It was hell. Before that, it was living hell. I I wasn't happy with myself. I wasn't happy with the world. And it was a combination of arrogance and anger. Frankly, when I hear all that's happening with the, you know, this cultural Marxism among the young people today in the United States, I think back to my own experience. Sure. These kids do not know God. You know, they're struggling. They're angry. They're frustrated. They've been fed a lot of pablum, intellectual pablum, like I had been fed. Mm-hmm. And they don't have they don't have the wherewithal to meet good solid people or you know get in touch with good solid literature. At least that's how I I understand. 
a lot of what's happening today. Young people without direction, without a deep sense of meaning, and I don't mean meaning simply in an intellectual sense, but I mean a sense of, well, being loved, that life, as Fulton J. Sheen would say, life is worth living. <laughs> you know, they don't feel that. And so out of anger, out of anger, out of frustration, out of darkness, they are violent. If you looking down the road, you know, maybe a prophecy, uh, what do you see happening in the United States with this movement if it continues? And is the same type of reality present in Italy? I don't see the same thing in Italy. No, I don't. I don't. At least I don't hear it. Now, I, you know, obviously I can't speak from kind of experience of growing up in this culture. Although, you know, a lot of the the thinkers like Gramsci came from Italy. You know, and Italy has a, a background of communist thinkers. But I think this phenomenon that we're experiencing in our country, you know, is largely you know, built up in the last 20, 30 years, you know, after after a generation or two of uh, universities just being taken over by, frankly, by uh, Marxist or neo-Marxist professors, you know. And this is what the kids have been brought up with. And it did, did that extend also to Catholic universities, that same intellectual kind oh, of Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, no, this is, unfortunately, Bill, unfortunately, I think this is the case. We... Again, we, we, we haven't emphasized the basics. We haven't stayed the course with the true basics in philosophy and theology. Now, that does, I'm, I'm not talking about being a kind of blind conservative and, and studying only Aquinas. No, of course not. But in order to appreciate the pros and cons of contemporary culture, contemporary intellectual movements, you've got to know Plato and Aristotle. You've got to know Augustine and Aquinas. And this is the problem. I think in our universities, we don't. We, we've been seduced with this, with all these contemporary movements, contemporary philosophical movements, without insisting on the grounding. In, in the United States, for instance, you know, we used to have sort of core courses. And these core courses were originally meant to be these kind of foundational courses. But that got, you know, uh, chipped away gradually. And so now if there is a kind of core course, it's rarely anything, you know, of, of traditional substance. Because in a know. traditional Catholic university of the past, there was always a core philosophy requirement, theology exactly. requirement. Exactly. In order to pull oh, things together. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And we and we were struck in that. I mean, I talked with my dad who went to Market U after the war. And, you know, we talk and I thought that, I mean, this is a completely different university. Mm -hmm. I don't want to exaggerate. I mean, I, at, when I went through Market U, I mean, we had some good professors. But, again, you've got to continually maintain, you've got to continually hire wisely. Yeah. If you don't, people retire and you're lost, you know. And once once a department has a certain core group of intellectuals of one side yeah. or the other, they they tend to replicate themselves in the department. Uh, it's it's professionally it's, it's one it's it's one side. It's not one, one side, side or the other. Right. It's so there, one side. are you saying that there's not diversity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
no, I don't want to say that because we'll be cut off. We'll be cut off right now. <laughs> so on a, on, a, on a closing note of hope, you look at the world right now. What what gives you hope, or how do you express to other people why they should have hope in light of politics, the world, you know, whatever is going on? What gives me hope is God. Okay. God is at the core. God is at the very core of our being. He's at the core of everything. All we need to do, and and the thing is we need to call on him humbly, sincerely, help, help. And maybe we have to go through this. I don't know. I hope not, but evidently maybe we have to go through this. I think that's a very uh, salient point to end on, and I tell this to people on retreats and in spiritual direction. I see a number of priests for spiritual direction. I tell mm-hmm. them, I said, I can honestly say in my entire life as a Jesuit, mm-hmm. when I have asked God for help, God has mm-hmm. always responded. And I have that yes. anchor hope that no yep. matter what I face, if I beg and I ask for help, God will answer me in some profound way. Exactly. And that's been my experience, Bill, and that's what I tell people in spiritual direction. I say, look, even if you start feeling doubts, admit it. Say, God, I'm doubting now. Are you there? Be sincere, and but share it. Thinking and praying are not the same thing. That's true. That's true. Before we end, uh, to take that seriously, would you end us with a prayer? I would. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for who you are, love. We praise and thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, God, and Savior, and for the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts, who enables us to call you our Father. Father, bless us. Bless Bill. Bless me. Bless our world. Transform us. Help us to call on you. Help us to call on your name so that we may receive your spirit and be transformed by your strength and your power. And Father, I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.